Good evening. Here is the late hour news. Ed Pettit reporting from the WOR newsroom. President Nasser of Egypt opened a 13-nation Arab summit conference tonight by appealing for what he called the liberation of Palestine from Zionism and the liberation of Saudi Arabia from British colonialism. A similar bid was made at an earlier conference and got mixed response. Greece and Turkey, long at loggerheads over Cyprus, are now contending with each other in bidding for UN action on the dispute. Greece has called for an urgent meeting of the Security Council. Number eight, Tarquinius won tonight's feature in the Daily Double, number four, and again number four, Lord Valentine and Dandy Diamond. In baseball, the Phillies nine, Giants eight, Dodgers six, Mets two in the ninth inning, Final, Yankees 9, Kansas City 7, Baltimore at Los Angeles is just getting underway. Turning now to the weather forecast for New York City and vicinity. Clear and cooler tonight, low in the 60s by tomorrow morning. Tomorrow mostly sunny, the high in the low 80s. Fair tomorrow night and more of the same again on Monday. The present Manhattan reading is 70 degrees, the humidity 38%. THI 66, wind from the northwest at 10 miles an hour. The barometer reads 29.91 inches and is rising. That's the late hour news for Saturday, September 5th. Ed Pettit reporting. Have a good holiday and a safe one. In just a moment, back to Gene Shepard at the Village Limelight. This is FBI agent Donald M. Cummings. An auto theft is committed every minute somewhere in these United States. The FBI and your local police need your help. You may be a witness today. Call your local police or the FBI. Our New York number is Lehigh 57700. This is WOR, AM and FM, New York. I bet you wonder if this is a prop. Well, I'm going to tell you something about this little thing that's hooked on to me right here. It goes through this wire, see it? Goes on up through this console. Is fed back to 1440 Broadway. Goes out on a cheap telephone line to Carteret. And at Carteret, New Jersey, right in the heart of the pig bogs, there's a big antenna that sticks up there and it squirts it right at Ohio. Nobody knows why. Why it's all done, what it's all about. Well, that's literally the story. And since we're, since we're embarked tonight on a program about that could be roughly called education, how it came about, do any of you remember the first time you saw your first Sharpie? You know, kids up to about the age of six are just kids. And then growing out of those kids... There's already, at the age of six, the defeated. There's the kid that wins. There's the toady, you know, the kid that says, yeah, 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 okay. You know, these two guys that are choosing sides. In fact, I'd like to look out over here tonight. We're at the limelight. Look down at these guys, all these men here. I'm going to talk a male thing here, girls. Do you mind? You can tell the women who don't think men. They do mind. And... and among every man's memories is the ineffable, inerasable memory of the great chicken claw chooser. You know, when you go out to the playground, all the boys, 
and you're standing out there. It doesn't have to be the playground. It's the street. It's the backyard. There are always two guys that choose up. You know this bit like that? These two guys choose up. Who chooses them? They choose themselves. They are the guys that grow up to be the bosses. Already they're Mr. Bullard. Already they're Mickey Mantle. And they're like this, you know. There's Mike and Al. Chicken claws! And somebody says, why'd you say chicken claws before we started? He said, why'd you say we shouldn't have chicken claws before we started? Chicken claws! Well, he's foot and a half bigger. So chicken claws win. And you know what chicken claws means, chick? That means that the guy that got chicken claws has first choice of all the other bits of human flotsam and jetsam that are floating around here. Now, already these guys are jockeying. You know that please choose me look? I sure could go to my right, you know, this, like this. Watch me. And all the oh, he says, Howard. Already, you know, they know, you see. He says, give me Howard. Give me Clarence. The other guy says, Howard, Jack, Fred, Mac. And it's getting smaller and smaller. And here is that little group of guys that are getting smaller. Until finally there's two left. Looking over this group, I wonder how many men in this group were left alone after the great choosing went on. Yeah, women sit there looking. Until finally... The last two are there. And he's two guys, the choosers look each other in the eye, and one says, Look, if you'll take Clarence. And you're Clarence, you know. If you take Clarence, I'll let you have Fred, too. Take both of them. I don't want them, you know. And I'll tell you, there is nothing worse than to be a throw-in a human tie-in sale. And so here you have men, you see, men know these things. And in civilian life, we grow up and we learn how to, we learn how to, how to hide all these things from us. Oh, yes. All these men here tonight, everybody, when he goes out on a date, he pretends he's a chooser. He is one of the great chicken-clawed choosers. Beware of a man that yells at waiters. He is, he, he's trying to pretend that he should have been chosen at the age of nine. And now as he puts that $5 and he says, give me a seat there, and he gives it to the maitre d', he's buying a choice. And the maitre d' looks at him in the eye, you know, of the man who is a chooser. He says, yeah, I'll take you, Howard. Come along, man. Come back here. Well, I am just a kid, you know, when I first learned about this, and I'll never forget it. Oh, boy. The first time I met the man who knows what this world is about. How to make everything work. How to make the little pieces fit together. You know, it's this that we're all looking for. Have you ever gone over a bookstore here on Sheridan Square and stood in line at the philosophy counter? As Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Norman Vincent Peale, Ed Sullivan. They all write books on how to live. Pat Boone writes a book on teenagers, this is the way to make it. You know, how to be nice and become a big hit record singer. You know? 
And, and oh, because and this sells more than anything else. Books on philosophy sell. And have you ever watched people skulk up to a philosophy shelf? They walk up there, you know. They're looking through Kierkegaard. You ever look through Kierkegaard? It says something like the evaluation of the elliptical dream synthesis. He doesn't quite relate that with Esther Jane Alberry, you know. He's trying to find out why she bugs him, you know. And he says, Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, he heard about that. And there was, a, there was that one little snot in his class that says, oh, I read Schopenhauer, you know. He gets Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer is even worse. He's translated, you know, and all these little chunky sentences that hang one another and all these things that say whereas and then the consideration of man's total history, the experience, the total who, what is the total experience of the race? And so finally he begins to drift over toward the Ian Fleming counter. <laughs> You'd be surprised at how many guys buy Kierkegaard but read Goldfinger. <laughs> There's a big difference. And if you can bring the two of them together, if you can get the intellectual to pretend the Goldfinger is philosophy, you have somehow brought Fu Manchu into the whole picture <laughs> and made him respectable. Well, I'm a kid, see, and I'm just fresh, brand new in the steel mill. I am 16 years old, and I have been working as a mailboy. I knew the steel mill geographically the way most of us know our bedrooms in the dark. Oh, yeah, I knew every last inch of that crummy, steamy, wild, exciting, insanely sensual place. Are you aware that big, big heavy industry conglomerations are sensual? There's an actual sexual thing about it. I, I suspect that this is one of the reasons why so many millions of men will work in what you think, uh, being from the outside, you would think is an unpleasant thing. Have you ever wondered why certain men are married to unpleasant ladies? And certain ladies are married to unpleasant men? Well, it's the same thing that keeps a guy in a steel mill. It is. It's probably the same thing that keeps a guy in hell. Can you imagine yourself down there in the seventh inner circle and you're shoveling the stuff and the steam is rising, you know, like this? And boom, the lava comes up. No, hold the lava, will you? Give me a chance. You're done there shoveling. All of a sudden, the guy says, All the guys that want to volunteer for heaven this way, you're done. You'd think about it. You wouldn't immediately say, Me, I know that. Well, that's the way it is in the steel mill. And here I'm 16 years old, you know, and I've been seeing this thing from the outside all of my life, this thing on the horizon. This black, steaming hell. These great, rising flames. And it's drawing me on, like it did every kid in town. Like in New York here, you know, they have the same thing. New York kids are looking at this and saying, why? Well, every one of you is drawn towards showbiz. In the same way, you're drawn towards writing the novel. It's all part of showbiz. You're drawn towards Madison Avenue. It draws you. You live here. Making the scene is important in New York. It's the whole life of New York. It's the whole life of every New Yorker I ever knew. To stop being a cab driver, become important. 
somehow, you know, get away from this, become big. Well, that is the industry of New York, making it. Well, the industry of Hammond, Indiana was steel, and it drew you just the same way. It's a sexual thing. It's exciting. It's all-inclusive. It just draws you in. And so we're drifting around, all the kids. Can you imagine a high school class where everybody talks about what mill you're going to work in? When you're about to graduate, one kid's got a drag. He's got a drag in a tin mill. He's going to go in a tin mill. Another kid's an old man works in the open heart. He's going there. Another kid's going into the Ford shop. Another kid says, oh, boy, he says, man, I got a mate. I'm going to the number two AC. That's the electrical shop, which was very, very esoteric and highly, highly, uh, how can I put it, desirable. That's like saying, I'm marrying Audrey Hepburn. You know, something like that. Well, so we'd all talk about these things until finally the day came for graduation. We're out. We're all standing out in front of the mill. I wonder how many of you have ever seen a scene like this. I saw a, a movie here the other night. One of the very rare movies I've ever seen of the steel mill. And it showed the clock house. And I wondered how many people watching this on Channel 2 on the late, late movie knows anything about the clock house. And it showed a group of men standing out in front of the clock house waiting for a foreman to come out to offer somebody a job. Well, that's what we did. We stood in front of the clock house just waiting for a guy to come past. And as he would go past, someone would say, Hey, you know who that is? That's Snyder from the tin mill. That's like saying, That's Mickey Mantle. It's like saying, There goes, there goes Gary Cooper. And everyone would say, Gee, he's a little guy. Gee, you know, he, he, he's a little guy, isn't he? Look at him, he wears a gray hat. And he walks past, it's the foreman, you know, he walks in. And then he turns around and he says, I want two men. And boom, they go. And he picks two. He says, come on, you two, this way. It's like becoming anointed. Well, since this is Labor Day, I want to tell you about a story about the steel mill and the first time I ever ran into guys who know what the score is. I am assigned... Oh, maybe about a month after I'm in the mill, after I had been a male boy and worked all through this, somebody said to me, go on down to the open hearth. He says, if you've got a green badge down at the open hearth, they're putting on extra men tonight. Well, have you ever seen pictures of the open hearth, those great pouring furnaces, those great ladles? Well, of course, I'd seen them from a distance. This has been a thing that, uh, you know, naturally that uh, I grew up with and I knew about. But to be part of it, it's like a kid who's nutty about show business. And suddenly one day, David Merrick says, you, baby, come on. You're going to do Ophelia tomorrow. It scares the living you-know-what I am. <laughs> and so the guy says, go down to the open hearth, you see. You can pick up an extra day. And so I go down to the open hearth. I walk up to the open hearth time office. And I said, I've got a green badge. I'm from the tin mill. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're hiring some extra tin mill guys tonight. Come on in. He says, you're going to go down on furnace seven. He says, you're going down on heat seven. And I said, heat seven? Heat seven? Well, Harry, I'll have to explain the story. An open hearth is like a giant oven. 
36 ovens all in a row. And each oven has its own team. And each team is making steel. And each team is competing against the next team. Each one is on tonnage. And there I am down on number seven, waiting to be called. Man comes up and says, come on, kid. I'm going to put you on the scales. So I'm standing back there in the darkness. And I'm watching the tin mill men trying to get organized into the steel mill world. And all the while over me, I hear the sound of these great, great overhead cranes ringing it out. Once in a while, somebody would say, come on, do something, do something, kid. Don't stand still. And I learned a basic trick. Don't stand still in life. And I began to move. I'd just walk from one place to the next. I'd stand over by the salt machine. And I'd walk over here. And I'd look at a meter. I'd walk back. I'd stand there. And I'd look, go back again. No. The guy asked me after a half an hour, he says, you worked in the... You worked in the open hearth before? I said, yeah, I worked down on number 12 before. He said, how would you like to work here regularly? He says, we sure need experienced men. <laughs> well, friends, I have never forgotten that lesson. It's a lesson that I carry with me. It's a lesson that I carried into the Army. And you know, somebody asked me to tell the story of the food in the Army. You know, you always hear about food in the Army, and the whole idea of food in the Army, and by the way, this is part of the memory. This is part of the memory that builds up into a kind of appreciation of the basic life that we live. You always hear about bad food in the Army? Forget it. This is a myth, promulgated probably by World War I veterans. I think most guys live better in the Army than they've ever lived before or since. And they sit there and they're stuffing their trap and they're like, oh, what food, wow. And they're eating steaks and chicken. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's just traditional. Say, oh, what food. And they're fat and they're walking out of the mess hall. <laughs> Somebody will say, you want some more of that slop? <laughs> yeah, all right. If you got some more, all right. Give me some more of that slop. Well, that's the way the Army works. You know, it really is that way. It's a tradition. And one night, I got my, I got my walking orders. I got, I got shipped. Redlined, as they say in the Army. And I am redlined to a company at Fort Monmouth over here. You know, it's funny. I wonder how many of you people ride past Fort Monmouth all the time. You see the sign. And you don't know anything about the fantastically complex life that's going on inside that fort. You, you, you just see it. You know, it says Fort Monmouth. Well, old Shep is assigned to Fort Monmouth. This is the first time in my life I'm assigned to a really big Army solid, regular army encampment. You know, there are places way out in the woods, you know, like Camp Crowder, these, these what they call training camps. But then there's the big time. It's like the Yankees. Yeah, you, to, get, to get assigned to Fort Monmouth, it's like being assigned to the Yankees. They got brick barracks there, you know, and that's, that's the big time. And so I am going to Fort Monmouth. And, of course, I'm, I'm up through Camp Crowder. I'm all through these places where you carry a mess kit. And they give you mashed potatoes. And you spend, you know, you lick them off your watch, you know, this kind of thing, you know, and you get the ice cream in with the, in with the stool and all that. It's just life, you know. You live it that way. Well, all of a sudden, I am assigned 
to the 803rd OCS Signal Training Battalion, which at that time was a crack cadre outfit. You know what is a cadre? Yes, you do. <laughs> cadre, baby, is where you live, where everybody knows the score and you're under them. Everybody knows cadre in your life. You know the kids in school who make the scene? That's cadre. You know the guys who get the good accounts where you work? That's cadre. Cadre is permanent personnel. Isn't that great to be called permanent personnel? And all the rest of us know how impermanent we are. Well, I am assigned to cadre, you know, and I, I don't know what is, what is this cadre bit, you know? What is this cadre thing? And I know, you know, up to this point, I have been, I've been one of the guys that people talk to. And I arrive at the camp, the cadre outfit, and the man says, the first thing he says, you're going to have to get your uniforms tailored. <laughs> My uniforms tailored? He says, you're in the cadre now. He says, this is the real army. And I look around, and here are all these sharp guys sitting there. They got seven uniforms. They've got sharp-cut suits. They're all kind of bronzed and fat. They've got cars parked out in the parking lot with gas in the tanks. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, and, and I, I could never, I, this was not the Army at all. You know, it was a very happy bunch of people. They're all, they're all sitting there with that snotty look. Oh, wow. And I, I came in, and I, I, I walked through the barracks to my bunk, and one of the guys says, what can you do? What do you mean, what can I do? He said, well, what do you do? You must have some kind of a drag to get in this outfit. What do you do? What, what's, what's your pull? What's, what's your point? What do you know? They want to find out who I know. Do you tell them? Nobody? I simply say, people. <laughs> you know, I'm from the steel mill. I know. See, I say, people. He says, oh, you talking about Olmstead? I never heard of Olmsted. I turn, I say. <laughs> well, that night, we, we, we go into supper. Well, I never saw a mess hall in my life like this. It is a mess hall that has lace curtains on the windows. It's got tablecloths. They have little silver bowls with nuts in them. They have cigarettes, you know, and these little cigarette holders. They have finger bowls with little strips of lemon floating in it, you know. I'm telling you, so help me. This sounds, you, you won't believe it. It's the Army. They have hot, fresh biscuits. We have our choice of chicken and wine, chicken Kiev or lobster. And I'm walking through this scene. I can't believe it. it's like I'm, you know, it's like it's out of out of some kind of a dream. And I sit down at my little place there. It's got a little place card. It says Corporal Shepherd. Sit down there, you know. You know that's that that look like you belong. And I sit like this. Look around. Everybody else is sitting around and they're talking. It's all wonderful, you know. I wondered if I've been fired from the army. You know? Can this be the army, you know? And I, I'm sitting there walking. And it turns out every last guy in this outfit is from New York. It's the first time I ran into the real New York Sharpie. 
There's a lot of phrases for him, I'll tell you, you know. It's like he's got his own little army. All the New York guys got their own little army there, right in the middle of Fort Monmouth. And they ain't letting in anybody, you know. They got the whole scene, boy, and it's going a yard wide. And I, and I don't know any of the streets. Somebody says, you know, they're, they're talking all New York talk, and they're not even talking about the army. It's all stuff like, hey, what time are you going to get the ferry? About and they're, they're like commuters, you know. How would you like to be suddenly dropped in the middle of Darien and you live in Circleville, Ohio? You don't know what to say, what to talk about, what to do. So I just sit there quiet, trying to get the scene, trying to figure it out. We are eating like I've never, never in my life eaten before. Magnificent food. So after dinner, I use the finger bowls, after first almost drinking them. <laughs> you know, yeah, down the hatch. I just figured it was a big martini, you know. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, like this, I watched the sergeants over there doing this little bitch, you know, with the thing. And, they, and, and there are guys walking around, there are PFCs, Walking around with towels, you know, and I'd say, Sergeant, is that all you'll have? Yes, sir. fine, thank you very much. And they're walking to say, on you, sir? And, so and I'm playing it cool by now, you know. I said, this is the Army, man. This is where I want to stay. I go back to the barracks, and I'm lying in my pad, by the way, with, with, with little lace curtains back of me. It was the first time I had a little bureau drawer, you know, you could pull stuff out, and you put your gas mask in a drawer. <laughs> I like that idea, putting my entrenching tool, you know, in a, in a little shoebox, you know, that kind of stuff. A big knife, you know, with the knuckles on it. And, and I'm putting all my stuff away there, and I'm sitting there and I says, you know, this is, this is the first time I've ever hit something that I felt I wanted to be in. You know, when you work in the mill, you always feel like it's temporary. The mill is much bigger than you are. In college, you know, what's, you know, college, you know, know you're temporary. Somehow there was a wonderful feeling of being home. Isn't it terrible to have to write to your mother? You know, you're always supposed to say, Ma, I can hardly wait to get back to Hammond, Indiana. This war is hell, Ma. And, you know, you got to say, Ma, I am now in barracks seven and I'm never going to leave. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, Ma, I used to think you could cook, but you're... <laughs> You know, oh, it's terrible when you begin to find that outside world or stuff that you never heard of in the kitchen, you know, at all. Oh, man, you know. And so I'm, I'm sitting there in the barracks, just very afraid it's all going to disappear. And these guys are walking in, you know, they're putting on their dress uniforms. You ought to see a real sharp professional army man get ready to go out. They usually have 35 shirts, all tailored. This beautiful taper, you know, all cut, beautiful cut. They're, they're starched. They've been starched for 10 years. These shirts just leap off the, you know, off the thing and just go right around and bang, you know. <laughs> They've got, you know, those guys with those razor sharp things, those, those, those press marks and the press mark down here like this, you know. Their stripes are pinched right in the middle. They got the sharp pants in their shoes, 18 pair of shoes under each bed, and a PFC to shine each one. You know? Oh, yeah, you ought to see the scene these guys got. And, you know, here they are. They're corporals. They're sergeants. And they're pretending all the time, you see. The minute you get out, you've got to walk down the street with that hallowed look, that, that harried, scared look, 
of the man who says war is hell. He can hardly wait to get back, you know, to camp. But he's got to keep up the pretense. So I'm sitting there with these guys. My sacky old Fort Monmouth suit, you know, hanging. So I begin to figure out. Let's see. Tomorrow morning, immediately after Reveille, I will not stay for breakfast. I'll go down to the tailor shop. I wonder if I can get a used car around here. Let's see. Staten Island, Queens. I've never been to New York in my life. Remember that. And these guys have been talking about Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. Are you aware of how legendary these names are in the Middle West? Do you know what Brooklyn means to somebody in Indianapolis? Seriously. Do you know that when you first see the Bronx and you come from Cleveland, you can't believe it? I mean, it's, it's, it's like you want to take pictures of street signs. Bronx, Grand Concourse. Where's the sign that says Bronx? I want to show them I've been there. Brooklyn, you know, I want to show them. It's legendary. It's like Oz. And these guys are talking. I'm saying Bronx, Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, Times Square, New York. I've got to get to be part of the scene. I have to learn the language. I've got to learn the language. How many of you have ever gone to an Ivy League school and you're from Minnesota? <laughs> You've got to learn the language. You've got to learn just that little trick they have of wearing a tie, you know, and all that little stuff. That, the little way of, the, the way to wear a pair of chinos. There's a way, you know. There's a way you wear them and there's a way you don't. The tribal language, in other words. And I'm saying to myself, I've got to learn this. And so I dragged my shoes out, and from 7 o'clock in the evening till 10 that night I shined. You never saw a pair of clodhoppers gleam. I'll tell you, you know, most, most guys who've never been in the Army don't know that wonderful feeling of shining shoes, that great feeling of accomplishment. Look at those big, you know, you hold it, you, know, you lay it down. You know, you stand back and, gee, you look your face in them. And so I'm shining my shoes. And all the while, these casual cats, these hip guys are coming in and out. I can hear the cars going. And I don't hear once in the barracks that one single word that my army used to denote everything. You see, and I had made the first boo-boo. You know, the first boo-boo. I'm in, I'm in this barracks five minutes and I hollered to someone, where's that butt can? They turned and looked at me. And someone says, do you wish to get rid of your ashes? By the way, that has a double meaning. And so... Uh, I said, sir, <clears throat> yes, uh, excuse me, fellas. You know, that thing in my shirt is billowing out. I've got the shirt that, up there like this, you know, and I'm sweaty. So that whole night, I put, I'm working, trying to figure it out, how to get my shirts right, my shoes right, my language right. The next morning is breakfast. Let me describe breakfast to you at the Cadbury. You can't believe it. You just can't believe it. All of you have lived in breakfasts. I know, looking down here, have you ever thought of all the meals you've eaten all lined up? I mean, can you imagine, honestly, an endless, an endless automat counter? And there you are, the one you just had, you see. 
And you look at that like the one you just had tonight at 6 and 7 o'clock. There's your hamburger or whatever it is. You know, you look at it and you go this way. The further on down you get, the harder it gets to remember. When did I have that? What, what is this? Then you say, wow, look at that. Look at that meal. And then, there's an, then, of course, you get further on down until finally you reach pablum. Oatmeal, you know, little bottles, and then nothing. You can see your whole history. Well, all of us have lived through breakfast. I know all of you have. You have millions of different types. Well, here is breakfast time in the Army, Barrack 7, the 803rd. Now, usually in the Army, everybody runs like mad. There is an opening. They have a, they have a little assembly. They call it a... a what do they call it? We'll have a formation. And you stand there, and everybody runs to the latrine. Some guys go down to eat. Most guys don't. <laughs> and down there in the, in the mess hall, they have some old uh, French toast. The, only, the Army is the only place where they can burn one end of French toast and the other's raw. <laughs> it is. That's true. French toast, big fat pieces of bacon, a lot of syrup. That's the Army breakfast. And you get yourself a little box of Wheaties. You know they eat Wheaties in the Army? It's kind of nice to know, isn't it? You know? <laughs> the Big G cereal is right there <laughs> when you're going off to get those guys in the pillboxes. So, so that's the Army breakfast. And you're very casual. You know, you know the scene. You know, you know it. You know what you're going to expect. And you don't think anything about it. Well, I go into the latrine, and I notice nobody's in there. I'm the only guy. You know, I drift in. There's nobody there. So, you know, plenty of hot water. Gee, it's great. They have great latrines and everything. Hot water. So I begin to feel alone. And I say, well, where is everybody? And I hear them going past. They're going to the mess hall. Every last guy. So, you know, I want to know the language. So I fall out. And as I get closer to the mess hall, I begin to smell this smell. In all the years I've been out of the Army, I have never yet smelled a smell like that. If you can imagine food that you have never tasted, smells you have never smelled, experiences you have never experienced, this is the way this smells. At 7.30 on a bright, shiny morning in the middle of an Army camp, fantastic smells, the smells of bacon, but I mean bacon, a kind of sharp, sweet, luring smell. And so I fall in, you know, gee, what is the scene? Well, I get into the mess hall, and there they are. They've got tables laid out as you come in with big, flat, stainless steel trays of freshly baked Freshly baked, get this, New York Waldorf Astoria breakfast pastry. Incredible. They had prune Danish. They had pineapple Danish. They had cheese Danish. They had Danish Danish. They had everything, and I've never seen anything in my life like this, you know, and it's all along there, and they have big pitchers of cream cream. They have kippers. You know, I come from Hammond, you know, we never have kippers, you know. Who eats fish in the morning, you know? 
And they had kippers. They had stuff. They, they had about 35 different things for breakfast. And here are these guys. The sergeants are walking past, you know, and they're, they're pointing like this. And the orderly saying, yes, yes, fine. What do you have? He says, this, this, this. Okay. And they'd walk back and sit down, and they'd bring it to them on a tray. <laughs> so I'd say, uh, you know, trying to pretend I'm in the bit, you know, I know. Uh, I don't know. Those are no good. They're never any good here. Uh, how about the cheese? Give me a little cheese, some of this and this. Uh, yeah, pick. Yeah, okay. I sit down and watch. I had the greatest breakfast I have ever had before or since. I'm telling you the God's honest truth. It was like those pictures you see, you know, when they're trying to sell you a cruise aboard ship, only it never is that way, you know. You ever been on one? It really was. And I couldn't figure it out. I could, it didn't fit. didn't fit any of the things that I knew of the Army, you see. So I'm sitting there, and, and I'm beginning to feel this, this funny feeling of conscience that I'm cheating. That somehow they're cheating. <laughs> that, that, when are they going to find out, fellas? <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the civilian world is going to come in here and raid us. <laughs> they're going to come, you know, outside. You know, they had this thing called the point system. <laughs> Everybody was saving butter. <laughs> Nobody had bacon, you know, little red points and that. Here these guys are stuffing it in. You know. <laughs> They're just laying it in there. And, and I, am, I am really digging the scene. You know, by now I can't believe it. It's incredible. I walk out of this breakfast, you know, and I'm feeling this. You know, I felt like James Farley looks, you know. <laughs> you know, that, that, that wonderful, that bald, big, fat, hefty Cadillac driver. Robert Moses feeling, you know, that, you know, that kind of, you're on top of the world, you know, you're, you're somehow, this was the place where a corporal counted, you know, I had my, my two stripes, and I sort of walk out, and by now, you know, my, already I'm beginning to fill out a little bit, you know, around the edges, my suits are beginning to fit, I get back in the barracks, and these guys are splitting. One guy is saying to the other guy, he says, how about Jones Beach? Jones Beach. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. It's the Army. You know, I thought maybe this is a new name for the Grease Trap. You know, I just didn't know this name. You know, the guy says, how about Jones Beach? Who wants to go to the beach with me today? Come on, fellas. Come on. Oh, come on, Harvey. And a couple of guys say, oh, come on. Gee. All right, all right. They take the towels. Out they go. I can't believe it. I'm sitting there, you know, I'm waiting for them to call me to tell me what I've got to do. You see, nobody is ever assigned in the Army without a task. And I'm waiting. So I get up, walk around a little bit. Another guy gets up and he walks around. He's putting his shoes on. He says, I'm going out of the service club. If anybody calls, I'm at the service club, fellas. Yeah. He goes out. He's going to get something to eat, you know, the service club. So I figure, well, maybe I'd better go to the service club. So I'm drifting out. Get down to the club. Ten of us are sitting. This is this is an army story like you never heard. Ten of us are sitting in the club and I'm drinking beer at nine in the morning. <laughs> I'll tell you, you talk about decadence. <laughs> and what worried me, it was German beer. <laughs> you know? These guys, they, you know, that was the war against them, you know. <laughs> And we're sitting there, we're drinking Heinekens, you know, and laying in. I said, gee, these guys really got a pipeline, you know. 
and I immediately begin to see some German cadre guy outside of Stuttgart drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> oh, yeah, the enlisted men the world over got a secret companionship, you know. They, so I, I'm sitting there, you know, and I, I can't figure this out. And, I, and, and one thing you learn in the Army, keep moving. I mean, don't ever set, don't, what's the matter? Is our PA going out on us? That's an exciting sound. The mob is finally coming. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, and in the Army, you better turn that speaker off. Yeah, cut it. Can't cut it. What is it? Hello, test. It's out there. What do you got? The radio on, fellas? They're trying to listen to WABC. Oh, it's me. It's the microphone? No, it is not the microphone. Strange sounds. Huh? I'll be, can, you hear it out, can you hear it out there? What do you think it is? Could it, could it be the beginning of it all again, fellas? Well, let me tell you what happened. I'm trying to learn the score, see? I'm trying to also stay with all my might in this company. It's the first time in my life I have hit what everybody in the Army is looking for, the birth. You know each one of you guys is looking for something in life that goes beyond anything that you know now. You may be looking for a chick that goes beyond all chicks, you know? That unimaginable chick. Women are looking for that unimaginable man who is infinitely sensitive, who is aware of their every mood, who loves them beyond all love. Well, I had discovered it. Honest to John, it was a, just a magnificent feeling. And I, 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 I suddenly says, I want to stay here. I want to stay here. And I got that panicky feeling. You know, I want to stay here. And I began to be very big, very Madison Avenue, go back to the barracks, Take my uniforms, take them down and get them tailored. I want them cut in. I want the things put in. You know that you can get creases sewn into your shirts? I'm getting creases sewn in. I'm getting my, my, my stripes pressed. Well, about 3 o'clock that afternoon, I am sitting in the barracks waiting for supper. When a guy arrives who had a baggy pair of pants... He had a baggy shirt. He was wearing a pair of sweaty sergeant stripes. He walked in the barracks, and I knew. You know that sick feeling? That sick feeling that at last they have come for me. It must be the same feeling that guys feel when death arrives or when that pink slip arrives at the office. This guy comes in, and he says, Hey! He says, where's the duty, Corporal? I'm looking. This, you got the roster at his barracks? I says, I don't know who's anybody around here. I don't know anybody here. And he looked at me for about ten seconds. Is your name Shepard? <laughs> I says, yes. Come on. Come on, let's go. Get your stuff, will you? Pack your stuff, let's go. The truck is outside. The truck is outside. 
And I, my beautiful shirts, you know, the tailored shirts. Put them in my bag and they're all, and they're crunching as I put them in, you know. Crunch down in a barrack sack. I take my entrenching tools out. I take my trench knife out. Put it in. Over the shoulder. Out I go. And I could see guys beginning to drift in from Jones Beach. The other guys, you know. Their towels are on their necks. Bronzed, thin, beautiful looking people. And I'm getting in the back of this GI carrier. And the guy sitting back there with me, the sergeant, says, How did you pull it? I said, How did I pull what? He says, How did you work it? He says, how did you get in that barracks? And I says, what do you mean, how did I get in? Suddenly I realized he wanted in. <laughs> and I says, well, uh, 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 he says, do you know somebody? I said, <laughs> <laughs> ten minutes later, I'm back in the casual company in the Army. Five minutes after that, I am up to my knees in the grease trap. And six guys are hollering at me, come on, and after that you're going to clean the chickens. <laughs> and I knew that I was back in life. Oh, wait, we got, this is WOR AM and FM New York. Now, ever since that time, I have wondered about that company. <laughs> is it still there? Are those guys tonight in the barracks over there in Fort Monmouth listening to me on the air? <laughs> Is somebody looking for a flamethrower to get after me because I'm telling the outside world about it? I don't know. Are they there? Did I even experience this? Two days after I had left that company, I'm sitting in a casual outfit. Do you know what a casual outfit is? Well, I want to tell you. Dante must have been in a casual company when he wrote some of his best stuff. You know what a casual company is? Even the name is scary, you know, when you think about it. It's all the guys who have drifted down to the bottom of the drain in the Army, and they got no place for them. No place for them, no place for them to go, nothing for them to do, and there they sit just waiting for the call to go to God knows where for God knows what to do God knows and they just sit and once in a while somebody says give me seven men you seven from the end let's go and you get up and you go you don't know who you're with well three days later after about six years in this casual company I'm sitting around and just like this, I'm sitting in a mess hall, and we're eating our rubber, our rubber liver. They give us liver, you know, it's rubber liver. And we're all sitting there, and, and there's no talk in a casual company. Once in a while, that famous word is heard, that's all. You'll hear somebody, what's up? And somebody's, oh, I'm thinking, well, you! And then somebody, who said that? Breaker! That's the way life is in a casual company. And somebody says, sit down, you beggar! 
This is the way to... Ca- and, and, and you know, have you ever been in a company where they actually steal your Wheaties? <laughs> I'll never forget, I turned my back like that. Whoop, somebody grabbed my Wheaties. And I says, who's got the Wheaties? That ain't exactly what I said, but... Who's got the uh, uh, Wheaties? Well, we're sitting there in a casual company... And it suddenly dawned on me, you know, it came back. I'm an inveterate storyteller. And I just had to say it. I said this. And they look up, you know, at that sullen look of guys who are lost men, drifting in the Sargasso Sea of Life. They look up. What do you want? I said, let me tell you. Let me tell you about... The 803rd. And somebody says, the 803rd. Were you there? I said, yeah. He says, tell him. <laughs> there was another lost man who had been through there for five minutes. <laughs> he didn't believe it, you know. He says, were you there? And I said, yeah. He says, was it? I said, yeah. <laughs> You know, he had doubted his sanity now for a month. And I sat down, I said, fellas, there is a company somewhere. I said, you see this glass? You know what this is filled with? And 18 guys said, yeah, blah, blah. I said, I said in the 803rd Champagne. <laughs> French champagne. And I grab a chunk of bread, that army bread, you know, with the heel marks on it. <laughs> and I say, you see this? What is this? And that same word, ja, 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 ja. I say, in the 803rd French pastry. <laughs> The crust melts when you look at it. And I grab my chunk of liver. What is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you are right. Fling it down. Friends, in the 803rd, these men eat... Well, have any of you had chicken Kiev? You know, one or two little flickers of remembrance of an ancient life. One guy says, yeah, I heard of it. And all the rest of the guys, you know, they say, yeah, chicken in the basket, you mean? I says, no, chicken Kiev. Chicken Kiev is filled with the finest of succulent ancient Middle Eastern herbs. It's cooked only in the high light of the moon under certain under certain conditions that are only found in ancient calendars and can only be truly appreciated by men whose palate has been crossed with the finest of light Alsatian wines. <laughs> Company 803. And I sit down. And I begin to eat. And somebody way down at the end of the line says, you're a pep-pep liar! <laughs> I says, who said that, you blah-blah? 
I was back in the army again. <laughs> and I knew, I knew then, something that, I, that, that I've always carried with me. Do you know the concept of paradise that we all have? Someplace it really is. Nobody believes us. Even to this day, army men, when I tell them the story of this company, they say, oh, come on, you're, you're exaggerating. And then they try to tell you some story, you know, about some piddling little company they were in in California. I say, no, no, these guys had silverware. I mean silverware with, with you know, the little hallmarks on the back. And when you ate it, when you touched the glasses, they rang for ten minutes. You know, doing. They did not have KPs. They had kitchen help. Those guys walked out of the out of the mess hall talking about the servant problem. I'm telling you the truth. I mean, they used to say KPs are not like they used to be. And and, and once in a while you'd hear the the mess sergeant back there saying, "Will you please go easy on the crystal?" You know, was that kind of thing? Army men look at you and they say, no. No such company ever existed. Well, I am here to raise my hands that somewhere there is a dream company. Somewhere there is a place for each one of us where it really works. It reminds me of the Flying Dutchman. Are any of you familiar? What is this the Flying Dutchman here? Are any of you, are any of you familiar with the Flying Dutchman myth? All right, I'm going to tell you what it is. There was an ancient Dutch mariner who was cursed because of various evil things that he had done. And he was cursed forever to pursue over the moundling, mainless, ancient seas forever and ever the love of a perfect good woman. He was cursed to do this. And they say that some nights when you stand up on the bluffs overlooking Frenchman's Bay in Bar Harbor on foggy, windy nights, you can see drifting through that sea the Flying Dutchman searching. Well, you know why there is such a myth? Because we always believe that somewhere there's some place that really makes it. There are some people who really do it. You know, like those people in the Ballantine ads. Isn't that a fantastic life? They live in the Rheingold ads. Somewhere there are people who live like that. Oh, yeah. Somewhere there's a heaven. Every last theology has the concept of a heaven. And we all, we all put it down. We say, oh, come on, come on. And yet secretly something says, yeah, but what if? What if? What if you're putting it down? And you're saying, I don't want to go to heaven. And somewhere up there, there's that, 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 that thing. Whatever it is. The company, 803rd, where these staff sergeants are forever 23. They never grow old, you know, in those companies. Where the corporals don't even know there are grease traps. And where the shirts never get that thing in the back of the collars. And I keep saying to people, but there is, there is. And they say, no. Well, let me tell you. One cold night, 
I am sitting on a bus going to Red Bank, New Jersey, to make a personal appearance. This was not more than three years ago. I'm telling you an actual fact. And you know that bus that goes out along the Jersey Turnpike? Old Shep is sitting in there, and I'm going out to some school. It's out there near Red Bank. And I'm sitting down on the bus. You know how you always go over to the bus terminal over here, and you can hardly get a seat? These little buses that are going to all these places in Jersey. And I get in this bus, and I sit down. I finally squeeze in. And sitting next to me, looking out of the window, is a soldier, a staff sergeant. And he is wearing the crossed flags of the Signal Corps. He's got this big patch up here. And, you know, I'm an old Signal Corps man. I'm sitting there, you know, we're, we're drifting out. You know, and there's nothing more boring than an old ex-soldier talking to a soldier. Oh, I can remember when I was in the Army myself, the scene happened. And we're drifting out on that turnpike. And I had to say it, you know. You at Monmouth, 